welcome to Seeking Rents, the podcast. I'm your host, Jason Garcia, the publisher of Seeking Rents, where we explore the ways businesses influence public policy in Florida. The name Seeking Rents comes from a term in economics known as rent-seeking, and rent-seeking refers to the behavior that corporations are engaging in when they spend lots of money to buy influence through lobbyists and campaign contributions and then use that influence to get the rules changed in a way that allows them to make bigger profits at the expense of someone else. One of the most common forms of rent-seeking is when a business or industry gets a law changed in a way that lets them pay less money to their workers or provide those workers with fewer benefits or protections. We saw a few examples of that just this year in Florida, like when Governor Ron DeSantis signed bills that let Major League Baseball teams ignore state minimum wage laws and that protect space companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX from employee lawsuits after an accident. This was also a big part of the motivation behind a terrible union-busting bill that DeSantis personally pushed through the legislature this year. The goal of that law is to destabilize and ultimately dissolve labor unions that represent most public sector workers in Florida, like school teachers and 911 dispatchers. That's obviously a direct attack on people who work for governments or government contractors, but it's also an indirect attack on workers at private companies. That's because when public workers collectively bargain for better wages and benefits, it ends up putting upward pressure on private sector pay, too. That's why you see big business front groups like the uh, Florida Chamber of Commerce and Americans for Prosperity lobbying for these bills to bust up public unions. But rent-seeking isn't just about changing the law. Sometimes it's about getting the governor to take some kind of executive action or to appoint carefully screened judges who can be counted on to issue favorable rulings. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, some of the subtler forms of rent-seeking that have happened in Florida over the last couple of years, rent-seeking that has led directly to lower wages for Florida workers. But first, uh, a request. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to Seeking Rents, which will ensure every story we write and podcast we produce is emailed straight to your inbox the moment it publishes. Seeking Rents does not and will never have a paywall, and everyone can subscribe for free. But you can also choose to pay for a subscription if you can afford it. And those voluntary paid subscriptions are important. They help us cover the cost of reporting expenses like public records requests. Every dollar really does help. You can find us at SeekingRentsFL.com. Okay, with that out of the way, let's dive into this week's show. So... Back in the middle of May 2021, a tourism industry lobbyist reached out to two of the top aides to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Carol Dover had a favor to ask. Dover is the CEO of an organization called the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association, which represents a bunch of big, well-known travel and retail brands. The group's members include companies like Disney World and Universal Studios, Marriott and Hilton, Outback and Olive Garden. Even Walmart has a lobbyist on its board. It's basically a brand laundering operation. It exists so that these companies can lobby for unpopular things without risking any public backlash from their own fans. And that's exactly why Carol Dover was reaching out to Ron DeSantis' chief of staff and another senior aide that May afternoon in 2021. Some of these restaurant and lodging association companies were having a hard time hiring enough workers amid the continuing COVID-19 pandemic. And they had collectively settled on someone to blame, the federal government which was helping laid off and furloughed workers survive the COVID crash 
by providing them an extra $300 a week in unemployment assistance. $300 a week is obviously not a lot of money. It's basically the equivalent of $15,000 a year. And of course, unemployment assistance is only temporary. In fact, the federal government was already planning to end these extra emergency assistance payments in just a few months' time. But Disney and Walmart and all these other service sector companies depend on having a workforce that is willing to work for poor wages, paltry benefits, and unpredictable schedules. So they claimed that many out-of-work Floridians were just refusing to fill these jobs because of the temporary help they were getting from the federal government. They wanted states to cut these unemployment benefits off early. From her iPhone, Dover forwarded an announcement to the DeSantis staffers that the Republican governor of Alabama had just ended extra unemployment assistance in her state. Here is something that would help us a lot, Dover wrote in the email, which was actually obtained in a public records request. Now, this was really pretty brazen. No one knew it yet at the time, but separate records showed that the Restaurant and Lodging Association was already working with the DeSantis administration on another favor a plan to reinstate some of the procedural hoops that workers must jump through before they can get an unemployment check in the first place, like a rule that says you have to apply for at least five jobs every week. DeSantis had eliminated some of those bureaucratic hurdles early on in the pandemic, but lobbies for the Restaurant and Lodging Association, as well as some other business groups like the Florida Chamber of Commerce, had convinced DeSantis to reinstate them. DeSantis had already agreed to do it, he just hadn't announced it yet. But here was the tourism industry already pushing for even more. And the governor granted this wish too. Just a few weeks later, after more pressure from other tourism executives, as well as from some other sectors, particularly the nursing home industry, Ron DeSantis decided to cancel the extra unemployment assistance for Florida workers. The federal government had been planning to end these payments in September, but DeSantis cut them off in June instead. That was about 10 weeks early. In other words, Ron DeSantis denied as much as $3,000 in cash payments to laid off Floridians, all to appease some big businesses who were essentially trying to force people back into poor paying jobs. And here's the kicker. It didn't even work. A few months later, the Wall Street Journal crunched the national employment data. And the journal found that states that ended unemployment benefits early, like Florida did, did not see a sudden jump in employment. In fact, the pace of job growth in these states was about the same as in the states that continued to support their residents with extra unemployment payments. Of course, all the big business groups claimed it was just too soon to judge the results. Quote, it's too early to tell, the top economist at the Florida Chamber of Commerce told the Tampa Bay Times. Another three to four months of data will give us a much better look at this. Well, guess what? A few months later, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco published a more in-depth analysis, and it also found that states that cut off unemployment assistance early saw almost no corresponding increase in employment. In other words, by denying laid-off workers a few more weeks of financial support, Ron DeSantis and the big business lobby didn't help people get jobs. All they did was make it harder for people to get by. But hey, COVID was a crazy time. Everybody was flying blind. Nobody really knew what to do in a world where the entire global economy had essentially stopped all at once. And while this was a decision that clearly took money out of the pockets of a few unfortunate Floridians, the number of folks it impacted was, relatively speaking, pretty small. To miss out on these extra payments, you had to be out of work and eligible for unemployment during that 
10-week window in 2021. But now I'm going to tell you about a much bigger decision that the state of Florida and the big business lobby worked on together, a permanent change that to this day is suppressing wages for thousands of Florida workers, particularly people like waiters, janitors, and cashiers, and other hourly service workers who are living paycheck to paycheck. But first, we need to rewind the clock a bit, back to 1999. That's the year Jeb Bush was elected governor of Florida, and Republicans took complete control of state government in Tallahassee. It's also the year that county commissioners in Miami-Dade County passed the state's first living wage ordinance. You may have heard that term before, but a living wage is, at its core, a minimum wage that actually takes into account the cost of living in an area. The amount a worker has to make in order to afford basic necessities like food, housing, health care, and child care for themselves and their family. A living wage is usually a few bucks higher than the minimum wage, which doesn't really account for expenses beyond food, although the exact amount obviously depends on the local cost of living in an area. Researchers at MIT, who have developed a pretty well-known living wage calculator, sometimes call the living wage the minimum subsistence wage. Anyway, back in 1999, the federal minimum wage was just $5.15 an hour, and Florida didn't even have a state minimum wage. That was clearly not enough to get by in Miami, Florida's most expensive city. So Miami's living wage ordinance established a new local minimum wage that was more than $3 an hour higher than the federal minimum, although it only applied to people working directly for the government or for companies that got government contracts. Across Florida, more communities soon followed suit. Broward and Palm Beach counties passed their own living wage laws. So did the cities of Miami Beach and Gainesville. Local leaders in other cities and counties began talking about it too. Like Miami, these early Florida ordinances were still all just limited to government employees and contractors. But some other cities around the country were beginning to pass living wage laws that applied to all employers. Milwaukee passed a citywide minimum wage. So did New Orleans and Santa Fe, New Mexico. It was inevitable that some local government somewhere in Florida was going to take this next step, too. So business lobbyists got Florida's state government to step in. In 2003, the Florida legislature passed, and Jeb Bush signed, a new state law that made it illegal for any city or county in Florida to adopt its own minimum wage. Bush and the legislature let Miami and the others keep, keep making their contractors pay higher wages, but they were forbidden from ever expanding those living wage ordinances into true citywide minimum wages. Now, they passed this law even though Florida itself still didn't have its own minimum wage. The only protections most Florida workers had was the federal minimum, which was still just $5.15 an hour. So Floridians took matters into their own hands. The very next year, Florida voters passed a constitutional amendment setting a new state minimum wage. This new state wage was $6.15 an hour a buck higher than the federal minimum. And it was indexed to inflation, so it would continue to rise over time. Some of Florida's biggest businesses spent more than $4 million trying to convince Floridians to vote no on this amendment. The grocery store chain Publix spent half a million all by itself. Outback Steakhouse spent more than $400,000. Burger King, Disney, and Walgreens all spent 100000 And yet, the amendment still passed with ease. More than 70% of voters supported it. Now, state leaders in the business lobby still tried to mess with it a bit. 
The Bush administration chose to use a narrow measure of inflation to ensure smaller annual increases, and the legislature passed a law making it harder for workers to recover money from businesses who illegally underpaid them. The uh, lawmaker who sponsored that bill was named the Florida Restaurant Association's Legislator of the Year. Still, the minimum wage wars largely died down. In fact, the, the next battleground in Florida became benefits for workers. Voters in the Orlando area approved a local ordinance requiring large employers to let workers earn sick time that they could use when they or a family member got ill. But then lobbyists for Disney, Universal, and Olive Garden got the legislature and new governor, Rick Scott, to pass a law stripping local governments of any power to regulate workplace benefits. But then fast forward to 2016. Florida had survived the housing collapse, and the cost of living was once again soaring. It was becoming clear that even the state minimum wage wasn't keeping up, particularly in places like Miami, Tampa, and Orlando. So the city of Miami Beach decided to try something big. Now, remember, Jeb Bush had signed a law in 2003 that prevented cities from establishing a local minimum wage, but then Florida voters had passed a constitutional amendment the very next year, establishing a new state minimum wage. But that's not actually all that constitutional amendment did. It also imposed new limits on the power of the governor and the legislature, limits that essentially made it unconstitutional for state politicians to pass any laws weakening this new state minimum wage. For instance, the governor and the legislature could raise the minimum wage even higher if they wanted to, but they could not lower it. Well, the city of Miami Beach decided this meant that that law that Jeb Bush had signed in 2003, the one preventing local governments from setting their own minimum wages, was now unconstitutional. So Miami Beach passed an ordinance establishing Florida's first citywide minimum wage. Companies doing business in Miami Beach would now have to pay their workers at least $10.31 an hour, $3 higher than the state minimum at the time. As you can probably guess, Florida's biggest businesses went ballistic. The Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association, remember them? They sued. So did the Florida Retail Federation and the Florida Chamber of Commerce. And the state of Florida joined them, led by then-Attorney General Pam Bondi, who, by the way, is now a lobbyist herself. They all argued that Miami Beach's new minimum wage was illegal and should be tossed out. They won a trial and the first appellate court, but Miami Beach appealed to the state Supreme Court. Now, the Florida Supreme Court has what's known as limited jurisdiction. That means the court cannot and will not take up every appeal it gets. And when the Supreme Court agrees with a lower court's decision, it will often just refuse to get involved at all and let the lower ruling stand. But in this case, the Florida Supreme Court decided to step in. In August 2018, Florida's highest court voted 4-3 to three to hear Miami Beach's appeal. This set up a potentially monumental showdown, and it went far beyond just minimum wage, too. This case had the potential to stop state politicians from continuing to infringe on the ability of local communities around Florida to make their own decisions on issues. Some of Florida's most respected constitutional scholars rallied to Miami Beach's side, including the former president of Florida State University and one of the lawyers who actually helped write the current state constitution. They saw the case as a chance to preserve home rule in Florida. In their legal brief, they wrote, 
the judiciary is home rule's last line of defense. But then two things happened at once. The three most senior members of the Florida Supreme Court all reached the mandatory retirement age, and Ron DeSantis was elected governor of Florida. Literally within days of taking office, DeSantis replaced all three of those justices with new, far more conservative appointees, all of whom had been carefully screened by activists with the Federalist Society, an association of right-wing lawyers. The impact was immediate. Just weeks after DeSantis put his people on the court, the court decided to dismiss Miami Beach's minimum wage appeal. The old court had voted 4-3 to hear the case. The new DeSantis court voted 5-2 to ditch it. They didn't even bother to hear the oral arguments, which, by that point, were less than a month away. Now, obviously, there's no way to know for sure how the court might have ruled even if DeSantis hadn't been able to flip it. Maybe after reading the legal briefs and listening to the oral arguments, the justices would still have sided with the big business lobby. I've read all the briefs myself, and even I have to admit this was basically a legal jump ball. Both sides made some pretty compelling legal arguments. But I was also writing for a business news magazine at the time and spending a lot of time talking to corporate attorneys and other people involved in judicial politics in Florida. And I can tell you, there were some smart people in Tallahassee who thought this court was going to uphold Miami Beach's minimum wage. But we'll never be able to say for sure. What is sure, though, is that Ron DeSantis changed the Supreme Court, the court sided with the business lobby, and workers in Miami Beach lost their living wage. And no other community in Florida has been willing to take up the issue since. You know, just a few days before this decision was announced, DeSantis made an appearance at a Federalist Society conference in Orlando, where he gave a speech while folks were dining at the Disney World Yacht and Beach Club. <laughs> That's right. It was at Disney. Anyway, when DeSantis walked in the door, the crowd greeted him like a conquering hero, all because of what he'd just done to the Florida Supreme Court. DeSantis knew it, too. During his speech, he said, quote, Probably nothing we will do will end up having a longer impact than what we've already done in the first month, which has put three people on the Supreme Court. He was right. By the way, the business lobby still hasn't stopped trying to mess with minimum wages in Florida. We mentioned this on an earlier pod, but there was a bill filed in the legislature a couple of sessions ago that would have killed even those more limited living wage ordinances, the ones that only apply to companies getting government contracts. Reporting by the Tampa Bay Times revealed that the bill was pushed by Power Design, a big electrical contractor. That bill didn't pass, but it resurfaced again this past session when the state House of Representatives tried to slip it into another bill. It failed to pass again, but clearly this issue isn't going away. It's actually not yet clear if Power Design was the driving force again this year or whether any other companies might have gotten involved this time around. For instance, there was some speculation that American Airlines was lobbying for it. American has a big presence at Miami International Airport, where employees are protected by the county's living wage ordinance. We've actually got a public records request into the state house looking for more answers on this. So hopefully we'll get a clearer idea soon of who was behind the bill, since we can probably bet they're going to try again soon. And I think that's as good a place as any to end this week's show, since it's a nice reminder of what you're supporting when you choose to pay for a subscription to Seeking Rights. 
Like I said earlier, the money we get from paid subscriptions helps us cover the cost of reporting expenses like public records requests. So please go sign up and pay for it if you can afford it. The easiest way to find us is at seekingrentsfl.com. And remember, we're more than just this podcast. We've had a couple of stories published this past couple of weeks, too. One examined how much money Ron DeSantis has raised for his presidential campaign from lobbyists seeking favors from his administration. Another story looked at how the governor and lawmakers have tried to help the giant power company, Florida Power & Light, sabotage a class action lawsuit that claims the power company failed to prepare for Hurricane Irma back in 2017. I'll post links to both stories in this week's show notes. And as always, if you've got any feedback on this show or any other content we produce, please don't hesitate to reach out. And if there are any other subjects you want Seeking Rents to explore, just let me know. My contact info will be in the show notes too. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon.